Good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Good to be here. I know Art's excited. Anybody else excited to be here today? Hey, man, Gabe's excited. I like it. Hey, everybody online, good that you could join us. So we are, as you can tell, we're going to continue our, our series into Galatians. How much of a, how many of you guys are enjoying this series so far? We got through the first chapter, now we're going midway through second. Uh, I love this book. I, we, we preached through this book last summer in Utah County, and it, it's, it's life-changing. And so I, my prayer today is that you guys will, will grab a hold of some truth that we're going to read about today and, and really uh, run with it and, uh, and, change, and really have it to transform your life. But let me, uh, let me start off with a story for you guys. So I was reading this, this article. It's actually in a Christian mother's magazine. I, I don't go around reading those too often, but it was there, so I, I looked at it. And um, there was this, uh, it, it was this woman who was uh, like a VP. She was like a, you know, someone I call like a big wig, right? She had a lot of power and authority in her corporate world. And she was known for her power suits and her fine hair and makeup. And she was sitting with her uh, young son at the breakfast table eating cereal. And she had just woken up. She puffy eyes and bathrobe on, curlers in her hair. And uh, her, her son looks at her and says, Mom, you sure look pretty today. And she was kind of thrown off. She was like, well, I, I wasn't looking pretty. I wasn't, I wasn't wearing my power suit and my makeup and the fine hairdo. And, uh, and she says, so, you know, why, why do you think I look pretty? He says, well, when you look like this, it means that you're all mine. And, his, you know, in his mind, it was like, when you're looking like this, it means I get my mom, right? With power suit mom, she's corporate mom, right? She's business mom, and it's a, a different dynamic. You know, when I, and I read that, and it really stuck with me because, you know, we're going to be looking at what it means when religion goes wrong. When religion goes wrong, and how many of you, like you are kind of your back squirms a little bit when people say, "Are you religious?" Like you kind of spaz out a little bit. Yeah, yeah, me too. You know, because you know the mother. She in this story, she didn't think that she would be recognized or even maybe belong in the place that she was without her power suit. Right? She she thought, "Boy, this isn't who I usually look like in my bathrobe, curlers, and, and puffy eyes." You know, she's used for the power suits and makeup, and, and she thought that's what her kid would recognize her as, but what he cared about was, was just having her there and having her present in that situation. You know, and you filter that through what we're going to talk about today with religion. Sometimes, you know, we look at the exterior and think this is how we should be recognized, isn't it? We look at the exterior and, and our power suits of religion and, and our fine makeup, and we say, this is how we should be recognized, and this is how we should belong. You guys ever had that thought? I'm supposed to look a certain way? I'm supposed to come from a certain family or a specific class to really fit in to what God wants us to be? You know, religion is, is like our power suits and our fancy makeup. We, we put on our actions, and we think this is who we are. We start finding we are our identities and the things that we do, the things that we do to try to appease God. And in fact, if you look at the, the root word of religion, it's actually a Latin word that the Romans made up. It's basically is in its essence is really this idea of going through the sacred rituals to appease gods. 
right? And so if you look at the, the pagan Romans, they would go and they would, they would have a situation erupt in their life. And there's a lot of great stories of Roman generals throwing chickens over boats and things like that, trying to perform the right rituals to appease the right gods. And often they would sacrifice to the enemy's gods and say, hey, maybe they'll join our side if we do all these things, right? And so when you think about religion, this is where that base is coming from, is this idea of, of ritualization, and the only time you really see it used is in James when he says, if you're going to have a ritual, use it for the minorities. Feed the orphans. Be there for the widows. Like, if you're going to do that, make that your religion, is what James is talking about. But in our day, a lot of times what we try to do is we kind of put our religion as our exterior and try to use this, how can we appease God by the things that we can do? And that's where religion goes wrong. When we try to belong or even be recognized as a people of God in our strict observances, in our strict exterior actions, we really miss on what God is after. We really miss the, the in truth of what the gospel is and teaches. You know, in Galatians 2, the, the passage we look at, what we're going to see is, is how are we recognized as the people of God? What does it mean to belong in the assembly of God's people? And what is God asking for? And you're going to see a lot of similarities with that story that I shared with you of the mother and her, and her boy at the, at the breakfast table. Some of us will, will sit there and we expect to look a certain way before we go to God, right? Where's my power suit? I got to be recognized by the things that I've done for the Lord, right? When God is more like the, the child looking at his mom going, I just want you. I don't care what you look like. I don't care if you have curlers in your hair. I don't care if you have puffy eyes. I just want you. And that's a dynamic shift in the way that we relate to the Lord. Amen? Dynamic shift. And what we're talking about is religion can be a snare and a stumbling block, and it can be a wall that we put up within the body of Christ even to cause a lot of mayhem and trouble. So let's look at Galatians 2, 11 through 21. It's because it gives us great insight into how we belong again to the people of God without being ensnared by the trap of ritual, by the trap of religion. I mean, you know, that's pretty pertinent to today and our life today here in our present situation and in current atmosphere. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up. Galatians 2, we're going to look at the first few verses, 11 through 13. And and this title, this heading, I, I use, when religion's more important than the truth. When religion is more important than the truth. Okay? So follow along with me here. It says, when Cephas, this is speaking of the apostle Peter, came to Antioch. Antioch is a, a Greek city in Syria. That's a mixed Jewish and Gentile church here, right? This is the first place in history where we're called Christians. We have a new name. We're newly classified as a people in Antioch. So it's a, a main hub. This is where... Paul spent a lot of his time before reaching and going to the Gentiles. He says, when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul, saying I here, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. And when you think of Gentiles, think foreigners. That's a good other word for it, foreigners. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the foreigners, from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Think Jewish Christians in a way. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And in some translations will say stumbled, even led Barnabas to stumble. 
So what is happening here? We have Peter and Paul going at each other in the church. Like, what, what's this about? Well, Peter was an influential heavyweight, right? If you, if you study the word, you, you understand that Apostle Peter, he was an eyewitness to the resurrection. He walked with Jesus for most of his, his life at this point. He's probably a young guy when, when Jesus was around and was walking and doing the things he did in the Gospels. And so if Peter walked in the doors today, we'd probably be like, whoa, let's watch what he does. Let's see how he acts. Let's see what kind of influences. Like, I would want to just question him like, hey, yeah, you too, Pete. Yeah, same. Not this Pete, other Peter. And so we would, we would look at him and we would say, what kind of influences is he bringing? What kind of things is he teaching, right? We would be um, impacted by the things he would say as, as he was very impactful and influential in all the churches that he went to. And so that's an important piece here because you have non-Jews and Jews living together in Antioch and then you have Peter enter in. And it says here that he lived like a Gentile, right? He lived like a foreigner. He, he, he lived accustomed to living around non-Jewish people. And if you've studied the Jewish faith at all, there's a lot of differences, especially in the first century between what Jews did and what Gentiles did. There was a lot of hostility. There was a lot of differences there. And, and if you were a Jewish person living in a Greek city like Antioch, there's a lot of traditional things you had to abide by. You had to still stand out. You had to do things differently than the Gentiles did in order to be recognized as a people of God. And one of those was in dinner and association. And if you were a Jewish person living in a Greek city, you didn't dine with Gentiles. You didn't sit with them. You didn't, you didn't eat the same food they did. And so what we see here is Peter walking into the, into the uh, a church of mixed Jewish and non-Jewish people. He's living like uh, someone who is a foreigner. He's living like a Gentile. And then these people come up from James, which is Jerusalem. And he kind of panics a little bit here, a little bit. Like, okay, like we got some people who aren't used to sitting with Gentiles. We got some people here who aren't used to, to they're going to they're gonna stumble if we, if we make them sit with Gentiles. And so you can see Peter's heart here is really probably more in the sense of how do I love my Jewish friends, my, my Jewish brothers coming into the church. But Paul here sees what's happening between the lines a little bit. Because what Peter does is he, he takes a table that was unified, everyone ate together, and he says, let's divide it, Jews on this side and Gentiles on this side. In the verses before this, we read that Peter was an apostle to the circumcised or the Jewish people. And Paul and Barnabas were the apostles to the Gentiles. And so Paul has the lens of a Gentile believer in mind when he's, when he's writing this down. And so even though Peter's intentions may have been, hey, let me, how do we, let me protect and, and love my Jewish brothers coming up from Jerusalem, Paul's looking at this as like, what have you done? You just stand condemned and you just did hypocrisy before us because you have divided what the Lord has brought together. In fact, in Acts 10, 28, we have a great example. So Peter says this in Acts 10, 28, in the story of Cornelius, if you're familiar with that story. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So Paul's saying, remember when you said that? When Cornelius got the Holy Spirit, that Gentile who wasn't supposed to, and you had to get dragged in front of what we call going to the carpet before the Jewish leaders, and you had to explain yourself and why you were hanging out with this Gentile. He's like, do you remember that? Because you just acted in straight hypocrisy by putting this tradition and this law before what Christ has done. So that's why he stood condemned, because his own words condemned him. 
in doing this. So Peter visits Antioch, knowing this, yet due to the either, you know, maybe the Jewish guys had a better persuasion. Maybe he, again, he was trying to appease them and, and love them this way. Anyways, what he does is he separates the tables and says that we will not dine with these Gentiles. We will not sit at that table with the Gentiles. And you can imagine even to doing the Lord's Supper. Imagine communion in this way where, okay, the, the Jews are going to do communion over here with, and the Gentiles are going to do more over there. We'd be like, wait, what's going on here? Right? And if you're looking at it through the lens of a Gentile, right, maybe they don't know the traditions and the laws of the Jewish people, you're kind of thinking, I feel a little second class. Peter walks in, someone you've been taught, someone who's come and, and I witnessed the resurrected Lord, and he says, I'm going to go sit with my people. And you're kind of left over here with the rest of the Greeks and Romans, kind of like, what, what's wrong with us? Has religion ever done that to you? Have you ever looked and gone, what's wrong with me? How come I don't add up to the bar? How come God wants me to fulfill these things and do these things and I just can't do it? And you're left discouraged, disappointed, maybe even feel rejected by God himself because of the things that are being done by the Lord's people. This is the mindset that Paul is so adamantly going against here. This is why he opposes Peter to his face, even though Peter's intentions may have been good. You guys ever had good intentions that blew up in your face? I have. <laughs> and so Paul is opposing him to his face, saying, what you're doing here is, is not right. And even leaves Barnabas, someone who was a, an apostle to the Gentiles, to be led astray. He's like, even my, my co-laborer Barnabas, who were sent to reach the Gentiles, we are now being led astray by this hypocrisy that you're doing. That even our, our Jewish friends and brothers are being led astray because of this hypocrisy. And that leads to the heart of this is, again, if you've ever been made like spilt second class, this is, this is exactly what happened. The Gentiles in the church are going, boy, we just don't feel like we belong. We don't feel like we're even a part of this group that recognizes as a part of the, the body of Christ. Maybe we're not good enough because we weren't born into the right family. We weren't born Jewish, therefore we have a, a lack of something. We're less than our Jewish friends and brothers. Maybe we weren't born into a certain class, right? First century world had a lot of classifications around people and things as we're going to see later. So Paul confronts Peter because he knows that the message that he was sent to give to the Gentiles means that as equals, we dine together. Equals that we dine together as Jew and non-Jew coming together that we belong as the people of God as equals because of one commonality, which is faith in Christ. That the other stuff is other stuff. But what Paul is, going, is doing here is he's bringing us into the heart of what God is and who God is for us and bringing us into a certain people of oneness and unity. Because what religion will do is it will take a structure of lists and hierarchies, won't it? It'll give you a bar to hit. And we like a bar. Honestly, we do, right? We like, we like knowing what the target is. All right, how can I appease God? If I do these 10 things, I'll be fine, right? And some of us are really good at the 10 things, so we really like religion. Some of us are really bad at the 10 things, so we hate religion. But we, then we find our belonging in those things, don't we? We find our recognition in those things, like the mom with the power suit and the curly hair and the makeup. She was recognized and felt like that was where she belonged in those things. 
That's not where we belong, is it? We're not recognized by our works of the law. We don't belong because we have a checklist of things that we're good or bad at. And I think of it a lot like, uh, like SAT scores in Ivy League schools. Did you guys, who ever took the SAT or the ACT? A few of us, yeah. You know, colleges would evaluate these, you know, who would they would accept into their, their schools by how well you have performed on the SAT or ACT. And, and some schools have a harder acceptance rate. You have to, you know, have different things that you've done. You got to be a good athlete or you got to have all these extracurricular activities outside of school that they evaluate before they bring acceptance rates. And, and the more prestigious the school, the harder the acceptance rate to get in. So if people get into things like Harvard, it's like, oh, wow, you, you've done some amazing things. You're really smart. And it brings in the sense of belonging and recognition. But what I come to tell you today, though, is that God has a 100% acceptance rate for all who apply. I love that. Right? That there isn't this checklist of things I have to do before I can approach the Lord. There isn't this bar you have to reach in order to feel like you belong in the house of God or be recognized as people who are a part of the assembly of God's people. All it takes is... 100% acceptance rate to apply, which we're going to talk about next. So the attitude of belonging by checklists and qualifications, it doesn't align to the truth of the gospel. What Peter was doing with the separation of the tables was not aligning to the truth of the gospel. Because the truth of the gospel, and this is my second point, brings in a new humanity of equal belonging. The truth of the gospel is a new humanity of equal belonging. Look what he says in verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He says, you are a Jew, you you do the Jewish things. Yet, when you were here before these guys got here, you lived like a Gentile. You dined with us. He probably ate Gentile food. He lived like a Gentile did. Yet when these people come, he panics, pushes away. Tradition then overcame what he was walking in the truth of the gospel. So then he says, how is it then that you force Gentiles? Why would you then force us to live that way or force Gentiles to live that way? If you yourself didn't live that way. You see the hypocrisy? How many times do we do that? How many of us are like, oh, we love grace. It's beautiful. Go grace. But then we're like, but you have to match this bar still. You have to believe politically what I believe to really belong. You have to have the same opinions on things as I do. if you really want to belong? But grace is good and grace is sufficient. That's That's what we do, right? We make that mistake all the time. And that's what Paul is calling out. He's like, doing that does not align with the truth of the gospel. And I want, to, I want to say this a couple times, especially for those in the back, just in case you can't hear it. Everyone who comes to Christ through faith by grace belongs to God and therefore are equals. One more time. Everyone who comes to Christ through faith by grace belongs to God and therefore are equals. There are no second-class citizens in the family of God. There are only what is called Adelphoi, brothers and sisters. Did you know that's the main word the church is used in all of the Bible? We use the word ecclesia for the gathering, but Paul uses Adelphoi, brothers and sisters, more than any other word. A family of coming together of equals. And look what, it, look what he writes in Ephesians 2, 11 through 14. 
He's talking of Christ here. He says, for he himself is our peace. Think of that peace and harmony and coming together. Who has made the two groups, Jew and non-Jew. The world basically, right? If you think about it, the Jewish sense, there's a Jew and then there's everybody else. Just like the Greeks were like, there's Greek and then there's everybody else. The barbarians, the barbaros, the guys who just go blah, 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 blah. That's how they looked at the world, okay? It says, in that sense, there's the two groups, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Then their differences were, were robust. They went to war with each other. They hated each other, especially in the first century. Not long after this, the Jews will rebel against Rome and there will be a massive war and the temple will be destroyed. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and harmony. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He put to death the walls, the barriers, the things that divide us because of religion or tradition or the works of the law the bars that are being kept. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. There's no longer the, the Jew and Gentile classifications in the church, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. That is what the truth of the gospel is in the reconciliation of humanity to himself. And what religion often will do is it will create walls, in the church. It will take out the peace that is that God has created and put up dividers. And that's why we have to go against this religion versus relationship phenomenon in our churches. Because it's about relationship. It's not about the, the ability to build walls. So before Christ, Jew and non-Jew lived in hostility to one another. And the gospel teaches in Christ, they are reconciled as one body. Not two, but one body. This is a huge part of the good news. All of humanity can be reconciled by faith through Jesus Christ. That's the commonality between all of us who believe in Jesus as Lord. Not their observances to the law, to which most Gentiles would be oblivious to. They wouldn't necessarily understand why this was happening. You belong to God not because of your ability to appease him or your ability to, to check the boxes or to do the things of the law, but you belong to the Lord because... He wants you at the table. Amen? Think about that story again with the mom and her, and her boy. He doesn't want all of the makeup and, and big hair and, and the power suits. He wants you and all of you. That's where you belong. So we have to stop trying to appease with the things that we feel he needs we try to kind of put our own makeup on a little bit and try to make it look better than it, than it needs to be. When all really Jesus is saying is, you're all mine. Why are you trying to put makeup on? Like Peter, we become hypocrites when we, we teach that God wants your heart, but again, we put stipulations around it. I think we've all done that, if we're honest with ourselves, right? You know, you should, you should probably attend church. That's rule number one. 
Well, you should probably give a lot. I mean, that's good. If you don't do that, you really aren't the same. You don't really belong. You don't really ever recognize in the people of God. You know how easy it is to do that? We do it without even thinking about it sometimes, you know? We send a different message, even though if our intentions were good, right? Like, it's good to come to church. It's good to be generous and give, and give you know, what we can. And the Lord gave, we should give. But when we make our belonging into those things, when we make it about the checklist items, we do what Peter did on accident. We split tables and we say, well, if you don't do this, then you're less than this. If you don't do this, then you're less than. If you don't turn church every, every, every week, then maybe you're not as, as belonging here or welcome here or whatever it is. It's all almost subconscious to the way we act sometimes. And that just doesn't align with the truth of the gospel. In the truth of the gospel, we are a new humanity of equal belonging by faith and nothing else. That's the root core of who we are as a people. We have commonality in a faith in Christ. The religious barriers are gone. So let's not put more up for people. Walking out in faith is already hard enough, right? Let alone having out to hurdle over things that we put in our own way with religion. So let's talk about being united in faith. In verse 15, it says, we who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles. Now let me clarify that. So the way that a Jewish mind is thinking here is that people are classified. Remember, they're in classifications. So you have the Jew and the non-Jew. So if you were a, a Gentile or a non-Jew or a non-circumcised, a lot of ways to say this, you were already classified as a transgressor of the law, right? So you were just born not under the law, so you're just breaking it all the time because you don't really know what it is, right? So when he says sinful Gentile, he's talking about transgressors of the law. So you were born just a, a transgressor of the law because you, didn't, you weren't born under the law, as the Bible would say. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So he's like, we know as Jews that we are not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we find, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, thinking Gentiles, foreigners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. So what does that mean? The Jewish lens of Gentiles, again, born under the law, therefore are classified as sinners, and and therefore observant Jews wouldn't be classified that way. But what he is saying here is that the Jews know that the law cannot forgive our sins. He's like, we know that. That there's no way that we can just do more law, do more Torah, as he would say, and we would just... Our, our sins would be gone. It just doesn't work that way. And a, a verse that he often will quote to go back to is, is Genesis 15, 6. It says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. This wasn't by Abram's obedience to the law or obedience to the commandments or whatever. Those things weren't around yet. But it was the belief, it was this faith component that brought about his right standing with the Lord. So let me break up this 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 meaning of justified by faith in Christ Jesus, because in the original language, it's, it's a lot deeper than, than some of us may know. You know the word justified, the, way, the word that Paul uses there is a tough word to translate in English. Our, our languages really don't connect all that well sometimes. It's a good word to use, but I, I think a better word would probably be absolve. Um, the Protestant tradition in me does not like that very much. That's probably the best uh, English equivalent to the word because 
Think of it like in a, a courtroom setting. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever been in a courtroom in trouble? No? Okay. I tried to get you, but no. Okay. So think of a courtroom. You're as guilty as guilty can be. You, you committed that crime. You broke that speed rule, whatever it is. You're standing there before the judge, guilty, and you know you're guilty. You're like, I'm just waiting for this verdict. What's my time? What's my payment? Whatever it is. Absolvement means that someone comes in and goes, hey, I'm going to take that for him. Now imagine that today in today's world. Imagine a murderer goes before a a judge and they're 25 25 to life. And someone walks in the courtroom and goes, hey, I'm going to take that sentence. That would be like global news, right? The world would be like, "What, what in the world is this guy doing? He just gave over his life for this other person. That's what justification is. That's what he's talking about here. Is that not the law, there's no ability for the law to take on those things. The law brings those things to the surface where we go, ooh, I messed up. I broke that stuff. I broke that law. I mean, James, James even says, like, if you try to keep the whole law and break just one, you're guilty of breaking them all. So there's no hope there, right? There's no hope in doing that. So we need someone to come and take away the sins, to absolve the sins for us. And guess what religion tries to do? And, and the fact that you know, we're justified through faith in Christ, what religion does is it goes, hey, let me pay you back. Let me pay you back for that thing you did. And we try to kind of earn it back a little bit by doing a bunch of good things and, and trying to abide by things and go, hey, let me pay you back for the grace that you gave me. How many of you have given a gift and someone's like, let me pay you back? It's kind of insulting, right? It's kind of like, why, why are you doing this? Just take the gift. Right? It'd be like someone buying you a Porsche, being like, here you go. You're welcome. And you're just like, you know, let me, let me wash your car for the rest of my life to earn some kind of favor back. And that's what religion does. As we try to kind of go, I got to stand before God and be able to say that I did something for him. that I contributed to this in some way or another. And that's where the bars come from. That's where trying to do the checklist to somehow appease God. And that's where the works of the law comes from, right? If you're trying to kind of continue to build on the works of the law, you're continuing to build the walls, build the hindrances and the barriers that the Lord destroyed when, when all the world could enter into him through faith. And that leads me to the idea of just unpacking faith a little bit more because I think in a lot of times in our world, in our day, it kind of just stays intellectual. Belief is just kind of an intellectual thing. Like how many people have you talked to? It's like, oh, I believe God and their life is a mess. Or they say, you know, I, I believe he exists. That is, a, that is an intellectual thing. And, and what we're talking about with faith and the Greek word that's used there, it has a deeper meaning than just intellectually thinking about a belief in God. It's a sense of allegiance to him. And we read about Jesus as king, Jesus as Lord. He's talking about this idea of allegiance to the one and true mighty God. When you say you put your faith in him, it's more than just intellectually thinking about it. It's following him. It's when Jesus was calling his 12 and saying, follow me. It wasn't intellectually think about me. It was follow me. And you'll start to look like me. And you'll care about the things I care about. And you'll be transformed by the way that you live with me. 
And when we look at being faith in Christ, it means that we are completely sold in allegiance and loyalty to Christ alone. And in that sense, our, our sins are completely absolved. They are forgiven completely. That's an important thing that I think sometimes we miss. And again, this, our language doesn't match all that well with Greek sometimes. Is we got to take it from the intellectual into a life of actual walking it out. You guys follow me on that? And this is how we belong to the body of Christ. Not just intellectually thinking about him from time to time, but actually walking it out with him, following him, living like he lives, caring about the things he cares about, opposing the things that he opposes, not by our exterior actions, by trying to maybe dress up like him. Like, I'm going to wear the same robe color and maybe that will trick people to think I'm his. It's really this idea of, does your life reflect his when you follow him? Do you trust him? Or do you trust yourself trying to take care of everything? Or trust yourself in trying to do enough that's going to that's gonna get you to the finish line? Or do you go, hey, I'm just going to let it go, and I'm going to trust you. So we are united all over the world because we have been forgiven of all of our sins and our allegiance to Jesus as Lord. And that's what Paul is trying to say here, is that you are united, Jew and Gentile, together at one table, not because of the differences in your past, not because of the differences in the way you were born, not because of the classifications that you are, but because you have one faith in one Lord, Jesus Christ. He's bringing it back to the truth of the gospel, that God has reconciled humanity to himself. So if we build the walls, if we split the tables, we are not in line with the truth of the gospel. And Paul's point in verse 17, I think is important too. He says, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ and seeking to be forgiven in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? So what he's saying is Jesus came to save all of humanity, right? The, the, the promise to Abraham was that through Israel, through his line, it would be a blessing to all the nations, right? He's building this sense of all of humanity can come to me, not just the people of God of Israel. That all who have faith in Christ are now a new people of humanity, a new people of God. And he says, if it's sin to sit with Gentiles as a Jewish person, if it's a sin to dine with a Gentile, Christ promotes sin. It's like, then you're just promoting this division. You're promoting the walls and the barriers that Christ has torn down. And he goes, God forbid, that's what he does. God forbid that we, we divide and we put walls up in the body of Christ that's going to make people less than or they, and water down a bit of what God has done for all of humanity. So the barriers between the groups of the world have been destroyed. The religious bars that we set are, have been gone, they're done. The bar is, do you have faith in Christ? Do you believe that? Do you walk it out? Is your allegiance to the one true king of the world? There is no more veil of the temple. There's no more Gentile outer courts of the temple. All of that is gone. All of the barriers that separated Gentiles from Jews is now gone. And it's now all fine in the Messiah of Israel, Jesus. So let me end with this part here. The last part living in Christ, living in Christ. So from that, we have a life of living in Christ. He says in verse 19, for through the law, 
I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Pretty poignant words, isn't it? Paul doesn't mess around. Religion goes wrong when we try to appease him through this. We try to find some kind of right standing, even just 1% of that to God. Just an inkling of it, of trying to contribute, sets aside the grace that God has done. Think about that. Like when we talk about grace, we always say, his grace is sufficient. And we can intellectually think about it. But do we live that way? We can think about it and we, we kind of rely on it when we're insecure, which is great. But when you think about it, am I even at 1% trying to appease God by something that I'm doing? It's a, it's a mental shift in the way that you perspective that you live your life. If you're trying to do things to appease God rather than just doing things out of love for God, that's a big shift. You know, when, we, when we interact with one another, it's because we love him. You know, it shows a lot of humility to, to be in relationship with people. Right? Ephesians 5.21 says, let's submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Out of this respect and observance of Christ, we submit to one another. That takes a lot of humility, doesn't it? And here's a little, little secret I'll teach you. Unless we work within humility with one another, unless we submit to one of the reverence of Christ, be prepared to be the grinding stone that others will learn how to have humility. Because it's tough, right? It's tough to, to live in a place of submission, humility to one another, but it's a lot easier when we see the common core of who we are as a faith in Christ. When we look at each other, we look at people who are like that boy at the table and say, you're somebody who God really loves. And if we live that way, with the, instead of the tables separated, but more together at one table, that changes worlds, right? Because our world is full of division, hostility, all of that, right? And we know we're going to be hated. That's okay. Jesus was hated. We're going to be hated. But it's because of our belief that the world will hate us, not our behavior. It's got to be our belief that pushes people away. That's our allegiance to the Lord that will push people away, not our behavior. Amen? So if you're trying to climb the ladder of religion to reach God, if you're, you're, it's really just setting aside the grace of God and, and saying to God, you know, your son isn't really enough. I have to do something. Your son really didn't do everything for me on the cross. I have to also contribute to that. And when he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, this is Paul saying, I'm 100% in. This is him saying, I'm, I'm dead to the old self and I'm new in him and I'm going full bore in this new life. It isn't, I'm going to give it a try for a week, take, do the, the trial for about seven days and see what happens. This is like, no, I died and this new life has begun. And that is so important of a perspective to have, Right? 
that it's not just this one month, two month thing. I'll try this God thing out for a little while. It's really like I'm dead to myself and I'm alive in Christ. And my faith is what drives me. My hope is what drives me in him. My trust is what drives me in him. My, my, my allegiance is in him and him alone. I mean, the gospel is, it goes such against the world of idolatry. It just smacks head face with it. It's, unless it's him and him alone, it's something else. And that's the scary part is like, what else is there that we try to pursue, that we, that we love, that we, that we put our exteriors on for and go, let me just appease this other thing. When Paul's saying everything is, I died to all of that and now I have one allegiance, one king, one master, one Lord, and I'm running for him as fast as I can go. So all God desires is all of you. That's what he wants. How many of us have a relationship where that's all they want is you? That's a hard relationship to have, right? That's what God wants. He wants all of you, not just 10% of you, not 99% of you, 100% of you. And the question we have is, are we ready to give everything to him? Are we willing to, to say, yeah, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll do what you want me to do. This is how you are recognized as somebody who's in the assembly of God, is your faith. You look at the people that came before us, the prophets of old. You think they cared about what Israel thought of them? Nope. That's the lineage that we come from. The same God that we serve. This is how we are recognized. Are we a people known not by our exterior power suits and curly hair and makeup, but are we known by our trust in something much bigger than us? Are we known for our hope, which is much greater than anything the world has? Are we known for our, our Lord who can do all things? That's what the world needs, right? In a world full of hostility and division and hatred, it needs a church that will rise up and say, there is one king, one Lord, one master, and he is the only way to truth, life, and abundance is through him. Everything else will be left on the wayside. Everything else is temporary. You can invest in your jobs. Those things will be gone. Even your families, the only thing that will be left is him. Amen? Let's stand. Father God, Lord, we, Lord, your grace is just so magnificent, beyond belief, that all you ask is for us to follow you to put our faith in you. And in doing so, you wipe every sin that we've ever committed. Every thought from our mind is forgiven. We are freed from the liberation of shame and guilt and condemnation. And Lord, I pray that you work in our hearts that we also be a people who will tear down the walls of division and hostility, the barriers that which you tore down through the cross in the body of Christ. Let us not be a people who split the tables over things like politics or opinions, what the world does. Let us be a people who bring the tables together, that we can look each other in the face despite our differences. Know that at the core of who we are, a life in Christ is the most common unity between us, the core to which we, hand, we handle and in the core to which we sit 
is our faith in you. Lord, we're going to have disagreements. We're going to have times where we, we don't get along. In those moments, Lord, I pray that we remember whose we are, what table we're sitting at. This is your table. We will not be a people who create barriers and walls and hindrances anymore, but one that is full of grace for one another, love for one another, humility for one another, and submission to one another for the common good of seeing your kingdom develop and walking in line and truth of your gospel. So Lord, I just pray for, for all of us in this room, if we've put religion before you, if we've put our appeasement to you by things that we try to do before your grace, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us of, of the things that we've tried to do on our own apart from you. We are a people deeply devoted and dependent upon you entirely. A hundred percent, all in. That's what this world needs. Not people straddling and, and figuring out which way they want to go, but people who are all in, a hundred percent, ready to go, dead to themselves, alive in you, and full of trust, hope, and faith in the future. The perspective of eternity in our midst. So work in our hearts, I pray. Get our faith from maybe the intellectual level down to the heart level. And we follow you. We don't just know stuff about you. We follow you. And transform our lives. Transform our hearts. Transform our bodies. Transform our, our communities. It starts with the first step. And so I just pray that if anyone's here who has never given their life to the Lord, who has never given that first step. This is, again, we're in the midst of a mighty God. This is your opportunity to take that step. To take that step out and say, I'm done living for myself. I'm done trying to do this at 1099%. I'm ready to go all in, all faith. It's yours, Lord. So have every head bowed. Eyes closed, just respond to that. Respond to him. All he wants is you, not the things you can offer him. Can't offer him anything he can't have himself. He wants you. He wants all of you. Wants to be with you. He wants relationship with you. He wants to sit at the tables with you. Lord, help us to be this people that we read about. Help us to be the people who, who tear down walls and bring unity into the churches of God, to the people of God. Let us not be a people who are known for our walls and hostility and barriers, who divide tables, but are one who are known to bring tables together. If you agree with that, say amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. If you need prayer, we'll be here for you. If not, have a great rest of your week.